That Force Radio. That Force Radio is rated M for mature. Or should that be immature? Hey guys, Dustin Wint. Hey, this is Scott Snyder. This is Paul Dini. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. You're listening to Bat Force Radio. This is Tom King. I write Batman Bitch. And this is Bat Force Radio. Okay, we're back with another episode of Bat Force Radio, and with us tonight are some very special guests. Last week, they posted on our Facebook page about a fan fiction movie premiere based on The Dark Knight Returns at the St. Louis International Film Festival. And when I saw that, I instantly had to know more about them and the project. So I reached out to Wyatt Weed and Gail Gallagher of Pirate media group to find out more about the dark knight returns an epic fan film welcome wyatt weed and gail gallagher hey nice to be here nice awesome. to be here thank you so much for joining us so okay Wyatt, you've been in the film business you know since your early 20s um i looked at your website and your resume goes from uh you know you've been involved in film tv uh, some awesome music videos like Funky Cole Medina. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Commercials. I mean, you've done everything. You've been a writer, a director. Uh, you've visual effects. You've made miniature models, uh, art department. I mean, you're, you're like a renaissance man of the film industry. A buckaroo bonsai, if you will. Yeah, buckaroo bonsai. <laughs> buckaroo bonsai. Yes. And, Gail, you're one of the co-owners for Pirate Media Group. You're yes. Film producer, you also run Pirate Pictures, and you're involved graphic design with, uh, is it Alley Design Group? Alley Design Group, yes. Okay. So, And I really should say, we really should say right off the top here that Pirate Pictures, Pirate Media Group is really kind of more like the distribution and getting the DVDs and stuff out there, and that tends to be more me and Gail, but Pirate Pictures is really kind of the force behind the actual production. And that's um, that's also Pirate Pictures is uh, is actually owned by a gentleman named uh, Bob Clark, and Bob Clark actually did all the uh, the lighting uh, for The Dark Knight Returns. And Bob Bob Clark is kind of the one who who wanted to start a production company in the Midwest, and then got Gail and I involved. And you know, like most owners, Bob gets to you know go and play golf and you know race his car and you know do leisurely things that that wealthy men do, but, um, no, he's still, he's the one that, uh, you know, is the, he's sort of the, the financial backbone behind pirate pictures. And he's the one who allows us to, to play and have nice toys and, and do cool, <laughs> cool films and things. You gotta have, you gotta have a sugar daddy. You gotta have a sugar daddy. <laughs> well, thank you, Bob. We love Bob. We do love, Bob. <laughs> we do love, Bob. we love, Bob. how did this, uh, how did this Batman, the dark Knight returns picture come about? Well, when I was a oh wait no that was you oh yeah sorry. <laughs> Jumping in here. Um, I first this is funny I caught the first issue of the Dark Knight Returns and if if you're out there and 
If you're out there and you're listening and don't actually know, The Dark Knight Returns, written by Frank Miller and released in 1986, it was four issues, and it ran like February through like July or you know August of that year. When I was in film school, I was 22 years old, I caught the first issue, loved it, went nuts, loved it, and then could never like get out of class or get done with work and get to the comic book store before the other issues were, were sold out. So I literally read the first issue in like February and then didn't get to finish the story until October of that year when they finally released the compilation graphic novel of all four issues combined. And then I finally got to sit down, finish the whole thing, read the whole thing. Um, and I just, from the first time I read it, I thought, this is visual, this is cinematic, this is dramatic and mature in a way that no other comic book has been. I, I could see it as a film. I mean, even as a 22-year-old film student, I could see it as a movie. And and right away, I thought, man, I want to make a short film based on the first part of this. But, you know, that wouldn't happen for 30-something more years. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, that, but the, the, the genesis was reading the comic, and literally from the get-go, I could see it as a film. I could see it as a film clearly and had always wanted to do something with it. Did you always think that this could be a film and I'm going to be in it? Well, at that age, I was smart enough at 22, because I was kind of a gangly, tall, skinny kid at 22. I knew I wasn't going to be a 55-year-old Bruce Wayne slash Batman. Not then. And... It was weird because time went on and it wasn't practical. And I tried several times to think about it and it wasn't really a possibility. So then, you know, you get more to the modern age and digital technology is so good. Um, filmmaking is so much easier. And then. Thanks to Bob, we have toys. Yeah. So it was a few years ago. We just came off of a feature film. The dust sort of settled on the feature and I sort of looked around and thought, God, what am I going to do next? And all of a sudden, it just it hit me. It's like, I have all these toys. I have all these connections. I know all these actors. I know all these locations. And I just happen to be getting a little older. Hmm. Maybe I should make The Dark Knight Returns. Um, and, I, and I will tell you, if I could have found the perfect Batman, if I could have found somebody who was the right age, who I trusted, and trust is a big factor here, I will take... If two things are side by side and one of them is great and one of them is less than great, but still good. And, and it's a known entity. And it's a known entity. I will take the thing that I know and can depend on. And the tough thing about doing any of this is Batman, you're asking Batman to show up for like 15, 20 days of shooting. He's got to be there every single day. And I don't, even if I had found an actor, then I would have had to have asked him to show up all those days for free. Um, but to be honest with you, I, I looked around. I couldn't really find an actor. I really wanted to do it. And, you know, to be honest, this was the only time I was going to get to do it. I, <laughs> this is my chance. What the hell? I'm going to do it. I'm going to I'm going to go for it. Um, and I don't think I'm the perfect Frank Miller Dark Knight. I think the perfect Frank Miller Dark Knight was Clint Eastwood when he was 55 years old. But, you know, short of, you know, you know, going through time and space and making that happen. Um, I'm, I'm the dark Knight for now. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's funny that you say that because, um, Miller says that the dirty, hairy stories and stuff like that were an influence for him writing 
uh, DKR back in the, the mid eighties. Sure. Um, Seriously. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. You, so, can just, you can just kind of see it when you look at that original artwork and you look at that, that, because honestly I'm, I'm 52 now, by the time I get to be 55, I'm still not going to be as chiseled and sort of craggy as the, as the drawn version is in his comic book. But yeah, you look at that, you look at that art and it looks like Clint Eastwood. I mean, with the V hairline and the, the high forehead and the scary windy eyes. I mean, it's, you can almost see him sitting there with a portrait of uh, Eastwood doing some of those, some of those drawings. Mm. Um, hey, just so you, off road for one second, a side note. Um, did, did you see the, the animated film for the dark Knight returns? And what did you think about, um, if you did see it, what do you think about uh, Peter Weller? Peter Weller Peter uh, Weller. Yeah. Peter, Weller. About Peter Weller's um, voice portrayal for Batman. Is- well, what was interesting was, I did see the the animated Dark Knight Returns, and I was already well into production on my film when I got to see those. And generally speaking, I liked them. Um, People kept asking me, well, are you going to do this the same? Are you going to do that the same? And I'm like, it's not about what was in the animated film or what wasn't in the animated film. It's about what was in the comic book. So, yes, animated Dark Knight will start with the racing sequence, and so will my film because that's how the comic book started. We're basically going to follow the same pattern, so there are going to be some scenes that are going to be exactly the same. To be honest with you, when I heard Peter Weller was doing Bruce Wayne, Batman, I was like, wow, this is going to be the best thing ever. And I was a little disappointed with the performance. It just kind of seemed to sound like Peter Weller sitting there in a chair just reading the lines. I mean, I was expecting some real... I mean, my voice already in this interview has probably been more animated and had more variation. (laughs) And Peter Weller's a great actor. I love Peter Weller. And just... Yeah, you say RoboCop's going to be Batman, and you're like, yes, this is going <laughs> to be the greatest thing ever. And I was just, meh. I was kind of underwhelmed. Matter of fact, I was underwhelmed with a lot of the voices mm. in the in the animated version. I ultimately liked it. I think they did a pretty solid job adapting it, but I was a little, I was a little disappointed in the voice acting. Mm. I'll I agree with that. Of- I'll agree with that because I think they took actors that are were used to stage or film acting versus you know Voice animated movie. film acting they were probably in a room by themselves instead of like how mm. you know the Kevin Conroy talked about how you know when they were doing Batman the animated series it was pretty much the entire cast if they could all get them in the same room yeah you know it's flowing off on each other so I've talked to a lot of fans who have said why didn't Kevin Conroy do it and I, yeah it'd be interesting I guess you know, they're doing an animated film, maybe a little bit bigger budget. They wanted to they want to be able to promote it a little bit more. So they go for some name actors. But no, I think I think they should have stuck with uh, with Conroy. For me, I had uh, read the graphic novel a couple of years ago, but I'm not intimately familiar with it. And like Wyatt said, we were m- mostly the way through filming, good, mm-hmm. goodly way through filming our version when I did see the, the animated. And it was fun for me because I'm like, Oh, I know this scene. We did this. Oh, we did this scene. Oh, I know what's coming up next. So yeah. it was kind of fun for me to go the other way with it, that I had seen our version of the film before having seen the, the animated version. It was neat because the animated version, obviously, their their only limitation was what they could draw. My limitations were a little more physical and a little more real and practical. Um, and there are things I would have done bigger and different if I could have 
Um, but then there are things that I, I changed on purpose because I wanted to change them from the comic. Um, it occurs to me, I'm going to throw you guys a sideways note. Um, what Gail, um, we've been talking with Gail here for a couple of minutes, but Gail is essentially Pirate Pictures producer. Um, I get to do a lot of the, the writing and directing and shooting and occasionally the acting, but Gail, Gail's the one that makes all the coordination come together and she finds us things and finds us locations and gets us permissions. And I'm the den mother. De yeah, she's the <laughs> one. She's the one who keeps us all on track and keeps us from really acting up. So Hello, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that you, you tried to stick as close to the comic and the source material as possible. Now, there were certain parts where you basically had to story build to make those scenes a little bit more like a movie, you know, because you just there are certain parts that, you know, you have to, to build the scene before you just express it. And so and there are changes like if somebody came to me tomorrow and said, hey, Wyatt, we're going to give you 50 million or 100 million dollars to do an actual theatrical live action version of The Dark Knight Returns. There are still some changes that I would make. Um, but to backpack to backtrack to the first thing you said, it always annoys me to death when somebody does an adaptation and some of the changes seem so arbitrary. Like somebody wrote you a nice novel or a nice graphic novel or a nice play. Why are you not sticking to it? And so I really wanted to stick as close as possible other than something that I saw as practical or something that I thought could be clarified. Um, so of course, when I see certain books made into films or certain comics made into films, I, I like everybody else get irritated. Like if you do it better, that's one thing. If you're not going to do it better, why bother? Well, I don't I don't get it. Haven't you also said that part of your motivation for doing this was the cherry picking that was going on of, from uh, with other Batman films? Oh, if this film is anything, this this film is a giant. You guys said I could say anything I wanted to. You can say <laughs> um, anything. <laughs> if, if nothing else, this film is a giant fuck you to Warner Brothers and <laughs> Batman versus Superman. I mean, good God, why... Okay, you're Zack Snyder, and I'm getting way off the track here. You're Zack Snyder, and here's an example. You're Zack Snyder. I loved Watchmen. He made some changes to the adaptation of Watchmen. He adjusted some things. I loved Watchmen. I thought it was as solid a comic book adaptation as I've ever seen, uh, down to the dialogue in some cases. And then he goes and makes Batman versus Superman, and he butchers. He basically rips to pieces The Dark Knight and Death of Superman. And just, you know, he murders two great comic books in one pass. And he didn't do it better. It's like uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. We've reinvented the legend of Khan, but we didn't do it better. You know, right. if you're going to do something, do it better. So with The Dark Knight Returns, I really, really wanted to honor the things that I thought were so good and so solid. Um, but there were things like, there are so many news broadcasters and so many news characters and commentators throughout the Dark Knight. I felt like there needed to be a central news broadcaster and we could show other broadcasters and other commentators. And if I had a feature film, I would I would show other shows and other network broadcasts. But I thought, no, I'm going to make one news broadcaster and he's going to be the guy we're going to keep coming back to so that you've got sort of a through line. And obviously with the material that I touched on, we should have seen Harvey Dent or been had more references to Harvey Dent at this point. I had Harvey Dent, you know, make his little 
audio cameo on the answering machine. But in a short film, you know, I was already putting the Joker on the end and showing the Joker snapping out of his catatonic state. But I didn't want to introduce Harvey Dent just because he was in the comic at that point. If I was doing a longer form project, then I probably would have brought Harvey Dent in. But because it was so short, I thought, you know, that's that's distraction that we don't need. So there were decisions made for logic and decisions made for story flow um, and decisions that I made just because, yeah, it's a visual medium. It's a movie. It's not it's not a comic book. So for those that haven't that are listening that haven't seen the film yet, did we establish that this isn't the entire graphic novel? That this is right. just, just just book one, basically. This is basically the first half of book one, yeah. First half of book one, so yeah. so there's definitely room for uh, further continuation, and uh, hopefully I get to be a part of that because I want to be a beggar. <laughs> <laughs> Grants could, Grants could oh, play the know, beggar it, lady. <laughs> never, never, never say never, man. It's it's always a possibility. It's always a possibility. Tell us about you know. You, you had the plan, you, I guess, wrote the screenplay yourself. I mean, it's pretty easy. You had the comic book right there. Pretty but, much. Uh, you had to go into your own, I mean, this is a do-it-yourself film. And that's what we want our listeners to understand, that, that this was a passion project with very limited budget mm-hmm. and basically built by you and Gail and the team at, um, you know, pirate media or pirate pictures and you scouted your own locations you came up you actually built uh, the miniature for the race car is that correct yes yeah built the miniature for the race car built the bat suit itself nice. um awesome i saw a picture of you building your own cow <laughs> yes yeah um i actually we were so busy that i actually we had a convention that we were going to and We'd made another film a few years ago. We were going to this convention and we were selling copies of the film there. But I was so tight on time, I thought, well... Because we were getting ready to start shooting this. I went to the convention and I took my head cast and I took a big bag of clay to the convention. And I thought, I'm just going to sit at our table and start sculpting the bat cowl at the convention because it'll attract people to the table, bring people over and they'll take photos and say, Ooh, what are you doing? But it was also a use. If it's like, if I got to be stuck at a table at a convention selling for three days, I'm going to make use of the time. So I did the first full rough of the bat cowl while sitting at a, a convention here in St. Louis. Um, and that's all, that's all drawn from the training over the years in, in Hollywood. And would I have loved to have had just a couple extra bucks to pay someone else to do it? Sure. But something you hear, you hear a lot on this film is good, fast, or cheap. Pick two. We didn't have fast. Yeah, we did. We, we wanted everything to be good and we wanted it to be cheap. So it wasn't going to be fast. But the whole production, from the first time I sat down to start writing the script to... To right now, as a matter of fact, was roughly about two years total. And we started shooting early June of 2015, and we really wrapped our final shots early early October of 2016. So we were shooting for like 15, 16 months, and off and on when people were available. Because probably one of the toughest things was you have a scene with six or eight actors and a couple of crew people and a location – um, and nobody's getting paid, 
that's a lot of schedules that have to coincide. So there were times where you started putting the puzzle piece together and it was like, you know, 10 of these 11 people were visit, were available on this date. And then one of them wasn't. So you started over and then, you know, you just, you had to keep working on the puzzle piece to try and get all these people in the same place at the same time. And then they've all got jobs and some of them are independent filmmakers and contractors too. So at the 11th hour, somebody would get a job and have to beg off. And so, yeah, it's the toughest part of the whole production, I think, was just consistently scheduling all this stuff to make it happen over the course of a year and a half. And we had like 24 shooting days total. So 24 shooting days spread out over a year and a half. It just, it was just that ongoing slog to just stick with it and just make sure it happened. You mentioned none of the actors got paid. And one of the things that I want to touch on is that with this being a fan film, we really wanted to keep it clean. You know, with a fan film, we don't have the rights, obviously, from DC or Warner Brothers to to use the, the Batman um, storyline at all. So with a fan film, you make no money. That's that's kind of the rule. That it's not a copyright violation as long as you're not financially benefiting from it. So we wanted to make sure that nobody financially benefits from this <laughs> and really kind of keep it our nose clean on it. So, yeah, all of the actors did this for free. All of the crew did this for free. All of the locations were donated. Um, yeah. And I was okay with spending money if we saw it on camera. Um, and I knew that ultimately if fans saw it and fans liked it, then that was the reward right there. I really just kind of wanted to get this thing out of my system. And I thought, I think some fans will agree with me if they see what I'm thinking. Um, but I have to be honest, we spent even less money than I thought we were going to spend. We sat down recently and tallied up the receipts because we just kept stuffing them in an envelope. And I, I think our grand total tally of actual hard cash out of pocket was right about $2,000. Wow. And most of that was feeding the crew. Most of it was feeding the crew. We spent a couple hundred dollars making a costume. We spent a couple hundred dollars on miniatures and props. Um, but you have to understand, the, the kind of background I come out of um, I need a computer monitor and I need it tomorrow, but I have cardboard in the corner. Boosh, I can make a computer monitor. Or, you know, you tell me I need to make a bat cowl. I've got a couple of different types of clay in my closet and I've got some old plaster over here. I'm going to make a mold out of it. Um, I can I can take toothpicks and I can take spit and I can do things with them. The, the race car we were talking about, the miniature race car in the beginning of the film that crashes... Um, Rather than go to a hobby store and spend money on sheets of plastic, which are overpriced, I went to Walmart and I bought like yard sale signs. Like you drive by a yard and it's <laughs> for sale or garage sale. Those are essentially just sheets of styrene plastic. So I was buying like yard sale signs and stuff from from Walmart for like $2 a piece and cutting those up to build the car rather than going and spending 15 or 20 bucks at a hobby store for, you know, fancy hobby plastic. So if you were able to see the inside of that, that race car, it would say apartment for rent. Yes. Yes, it would. (laughs) (laughs) The The magic of movie making. But yeah, just keeping our energy up over that sheer period of time, I think was the toughest part of the whole thing. Just keeping it up and keeping it going and just, and just keeping that enthusiasm. Right. Wow. That's amazing. And I loved, um, you know, the actor choices that you made, you know, uh, Alfred, Commissioner Gordon and Carrie Kelly, you know, the three sure. core uh, characters alongside Bruce Wayne. I thought they they did an excellent job themselves. Could you 
talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, the casting and, and whatnot and the other people involved? Sure. Um, and then, of course, going along with what I just said, one of the tough things about casting was, um, first of all, telling somebody it was for free, but also then, you know, making sure that their schedule was available, making sure they were actually going to be able to do it. But one of the lucky things about the way the script was structured, I didn't plan this. It was just a happy accident is the script is very episodic. So other than me, a lot of people only worked one or two days. Rarely did somebody work more than three days unless it was me. So a lot of people, if I could get them for a day or two, if I could if I could convince them to give up a day or two, that was usually all it took. And same um, with the locations. The locations were really broken up that way too. Yeah, so we weren't really inconveniencing anyone for any great length of time. With Commissioner Gordon, um, one of the things I was really insistent about was, you know, with a lot of fan films and a lot of amateur films, you tend to get films that are a product of the age group or the crowd that's making the film. So you get a bunch of young 20-somethings together making a movie, and they tend to make a movie about a bunch of young 20-somethings, and it's cast with young 20s. they 20s. do a, an international yeah. espionage film, and the, the FBI chief is 23 years old because <laughs> yeah so i wanted everybody to be age appropriate i wanted them to look as much like the comic book as possible so the one thing about st louis st louis is a very professional town with very good actors and very good film crew people but it's not a real deep talent pool like los angeles if you put out a call for commissioner gordon in los angeles you're gonna get 100 actors showing up and they all look the part and they all can do the part you start looking at Commissioner Gordon in St. Louis, there's maybe three or four guys total that really fit the part. But I, but I had heard story of a, or heard tell of a guy named Rick McGugan. And this was just like talking to actors. Well, and, I had worked with him years ago. On oh yeah, film. that's true. Gail had produced a film called um, Cap Dance, which was about a mafia hitman, And Rick played, the mafia hitman. And I think after a couple of failed leads, it was Gail who said, what about Rick? And I was a little standoffish at first because I didn't know Rick, but I went and sat down and had coffee with him and we chatted and he, he basically was kind of semi-retired from acting and he was pretty much at home doing artwork full time. The guy's an amazing artist, but he was really interested in this. And of course he loved Batman. So I said, commissioner Gordon, and he just lit up and then he'd never read the <laughs> He never read the graphic novel, but I loaned him the graphic novel. And when he read it, he was like, yeah, that's I'm in. He's like, that that guy is me. I love this. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so Isn't that so, amazing about this book is that you can uh, it reaches all age levels. Yes. I mean, yes. it really does. Yeah, and, I was just uh, I was just working on a project with a bunch of high school students, and I mentioned The Dark Knight Returns, and a bunch of the kids are like, "Oh my god, I love that book!" Wow. Yeah, and you take away from it, I think, what you want. You either take away, "Wow, Batman's cool," or "Wow, this is so punk and hardcore," or "Wow, look at the underpinnings of all the political stuff in the film or in the book." I, I think it just depending on what you want to see in it or what you want to take away from it. Um, you can get something different out of it. Um, but then moving on with uh, the actors, um, Alfred Pennyworth was played by John Contini. And John Contini is somebody I've worked with now on a couple of film projects. And he's very, very well known here in the St. Louis area. He's one of the 
he's one of the outstanding stage actors in the area. But again, I started looking around for older men who could play an English accent convincingly. And it, it was pretty limited. And John kind of has the corner on these character parts. So I asked him about playing Alfred. And, you know, you, as soon as you say Batman, Batman's like international currency. You say, I want you to play a character in a Batman film and people just light up. And so when I said to John, play Alfred the butler, he was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. John is mm-hmm. also guys that has a basement full of comic books she's right himself yeah so john was uh john was kind of an aspiring comic book uh yeah. writer or an, an artist himself he sort of launched and designed his own comic book before he you know got the real job high school or college I think. yeah and he and his brother were going to make this comic book and become comic book publishers and ultimately it never ended up happening um, but yeah, John's as big of a geek as as any of the rest of us are. Um, <laughs> the actress playing Carrie Kelly, um, so tough because she's such a specific look. Uh, but I started asking around and a lot of the older actors were giving me reference to younger actresses. And um, Taylor Peets, who played Carol Ferris in the film in the beginning race sequence, she teaches dance and piano and other things on the side. And I think she had this young piano student who was also an actress. And uh, she said, hey, try an actress named uh, Ava Otis and see what you think. And I looked Ava Otis up on the uh, on Facebook and I was just actually I don't think it was Facebook. I think it was the Internet. I think she was there was some news story about her competing in some sort of like a national singing contest. And I saw her photo and I was like, oh, God, that's Carrie Kelly. We got to have her. Um so really it was a lot of hunting and pecking and interviewing people and talking to people and, you know, hunting them down on my own. There was no casting agent. And again, going back to this trust issue, I didn't want to put out a casting call. I didn't want to put out a casting call and interview 50 teenagers for, for Carrie. I wanted someone who was dependable. So when I got a reference from someone that I knew Mm-hmm. I knew I could trust that actor. I, there are probably, I'll say this, there are probably people that might have been better, uh, you know, looks-wise for the part or may have even been better actors, but it was that unpredictability. When you're doing, I, I've worked with enough actors who turn into horrors on set. Horror. Horrors, <laughs> you know, um, that I didn't want to, I didn't want to get deep into this thing and find out that I had an actor who was a nightmare. So I was always taking the known entity. I was always taking the person I could trust over the person who I didn't know. That's not to say we didn't have a couple of wild cards. We did have, we did have a couple of wild cards in the cast, but it all, it all turned out really well, I think. So was it, was it the mutants that were the wild cards? <laughs> How did you know that? Dude, I, That's weird. I love the guy you, who plays you know, Spike. Spike is awesome. <laughs> Spike is awesome. <laughs> Spike, yeah, Spike is Bill Finkbeiner, and he's a, he's really close to being mutant leader. He's not quite oh, yeah. as big and muscular as mutant leader, but he's close. Um, Bill, I've known for a while, and was looking for an excuse to work with him. And the the thing about Bill that's so cool is obviously he's big and muscular, and he's got the shaved head, so he tends to get cast a lot locally as a bad guy. He's always a bank robber. He's a bad guy. He's a thug. But the cool thing about Bill is he's he brings to it more than that. He could walk on screen and just be a big muscular guy, but he's quirky and he brings inventive. I mean, even if he's just playing a thug, he brings an extra level to it. So when he's Spike and he encounters 
Bruce Wayne in the park and the other mutant spud, you know, doesn't want to fight and walks off. And Spike does the bit where he looks back at Bruce Wayne and he points his knife at his visors and then points his knife at Bruce Wayne and swipes the air with the knife. That's all Bill. That was all Bill doing that. And then in the arcade where Bill's walking through the arcade going, here, chick, 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 here, chicky, chicky, chick. That's Bill. That's just Bill being inventive and 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 cool and creative and so he's he's more than just a big muscular dude. He's he's really a, a kind of a quirky, fun actor. So that was really nice. But the, some of the other mutants, one of the things about the mutants that, you know, if we had this to do over again and we had millions of dollars, I would hire people specifically who had shaved heads or, you know, I'd have the money to pay them, you know. Yes, I know you've got a nice, beautiful head of blonde hair, but here, here's a lot of money. Shave your head. Obviously, I can't ask actors to shave their heads. Some guys had shaved heads. Some guys might have been willing. A lot of guys were like, no, I'll come in and I'll be a gang member, but I'm not going to shave my head for your movie. So unlike the comic, I really I really wish I could have had mutants that were all shaved heads. But the guys who came out and did it were really enthusiastic. So the guy who played Spud in the first scene, uh, Sean Smith, Sean, Sean Lee Smith, I believe, Sean uh, had an opportunity to go to L.A. and start getting involved in acting in L.A. before we were done shooting. And I wasn't going to hold him back. So I was like, you know, OK, cool. Good luck. We'll we'll get another mutant because Sean, it would have been nice to have him also be in the arcade scene. So Sean takes off to L.A. and I need other mutants. And it was just tough finding like big, tough looking guys. So in that arcade scene, um, we used a guy named, uh, was it Sebastian Lee? Sebastian Lee. Sebastian Lee and Oliver Spartan. And Sebastian and Oliver had never been in a movie before, had never been on camera, but they were like tough looking bald dudes. And they were like, yeah, sounds like fun. So, you know, they came out for a day and they were mutants and they let, you know, Batman kick their asses. And, (laughs) It was tough only because they didn't have the experience, so they weren't sure how to hit their marks, and they weren't sure how to do choreographed fight scenes and stuff. But, you know, they were enthusiastic, and they were having fun, and they came out and did it. And, you know, I I, I could do more with millions and millions of dollars, but I can't complain that these guys came out and, and played mutants for me for a day, you know? Oh, I was just going to say, I want to take a segue there. Um, that, that location, the, the arcade... Um, St. Louis is amazing for the locations that you can get if you ask for them. And the, the abandoned arcade is actually an abandoned mall here in St. Louis that oh. had been shut down two years prior to us being there. So it had just been sitting empty for two years. They're getting ready to, to level it. And Wyatt just started making some phone calls and found the property manager who ultimately just gave us the keys and said... <laughs> Sure. Bring the keys back in a couple of days. And that mall was crazy. It was so cold filming in there. It was like 50 degrees outside and I don't know, 30 inside for some reason. I mean, we could see our breath. And what was there, two working outlets in the mall? So like two working outlets in the whole mall. And this mall is huge. This mile was like a quarter mile long from one end to the other. It's a massive mall. So we had to run these long, long power lines from the working power plate, uh, power plugs. And we had to run a generator and we stuck the generator back into one of the closed stores. But this mall is 
why people will die during the zombie apocalypse. No, we are the reason yeah. it's all like that. Well, because we were just fascinated and we'd grab flashlights and we'd go walking back into these dark abandoned stores where there was no light and trip over stuff. And, and then separate. You know, separate and turn into dark rooms and stumble over stuff. And it's like, you know, if there were zombies, we'd, we'd all be zombie food right now. We would so be dead. Um, but Didn't you scare I, the shit out of yourself walking back into a Oh my god, we were here? we were going through a clothing room, a clothing store and we're turning corners and looking through hallways and I come around a corner in and the dark with flashlights. So there's something looking back at me and it scares the hell out of me and I realize I'm looking into a mirror on a dressing room door <laughs> and I walk on and about 5 seconds later the guy behind me, Bob, he comes around the same corner and and I hear him yelp because he looks in the exact same mirror that I did. Um did he give but you I ideas was. for a new film? <laughs> when, when are you going back to that mall to do your own Dawn of the Dead? Well, yeah. here's the cool thing. I'll tell you what. When we were in there, there was a the, the woman who was managing it. It was a company out of Chicago called Urban Street Group. And the local woman who was managing it was named Pamela Wucher. And I think it's demolished by now. I, it's If it's not completely demolished, it's mostly demolished. And when we were in there, I think they were trying to, you know, are we going to revitalize this place? Are we going to remodel it? Are we going to work with the local township? Are we going to try and get tax credits? They were sort of in flux as to how the heck they were going to, what what were they going to do with this huge property? Um, and ultimately they said, well, let's tear it down and start over. But while we were there walking through it with the manager, I said, Pam, you have got to tell production companies that this is available. I said, even if you end up tearing it down, let people know you have an abandoned mall for rent. I said, I tell you, production companies will come. I said, Walking, Walking Dead. Dead will come. Tell people. And I think ultimately they just didn't want to get into that. Um, they did let us use it for free. But something I want to stress to young filmmakers out there who are listening is for this production, we did have production insurance. We didn't spend a lot of money. Um, people weren't getting paid, but we splurged for production insurance because the last thing you want to do is go in someplace for free and damage it, set it on fire, break something, knock a hole in a wall, knock a hole in a wall. And certainly, too, you bring an actor on for free and you're doing a fight scene and somebody breaks a leg or knocks a tooth out or something like that. So so we coughed up the money for the insurance. Um, we did do that. And a lot of places like... Uh, like like the mall, like Crestwood Plaza, they wanted insurance. They, they weren't going to charge us. They, they trusted us, but they wanted insurance. They didn't want to be in trouble if something happened to us. So, uh, you know, cheap, low budget, off the cuff, you know, fly by night, but we still had insurance. That is one thing we, we did have was insurance. Well, and one thing as independent filmmakers that we've learned too is that a lot of, especially here in the Midwest, a lot of locations don't even know to ask for insurance. But for us, it adds a sense of legitimacy if when we approach somebody, we tell them that we have insurance, that it makes us seem that much more professional. And we are professionals, but for for a location, they're not used to filmmaking. And so for us to approach them and have everything in line, um, the producer in me <laughs> likes to have all that ready to go. Now, when you were on set, did you have like a copy of the the graphic novel to kind of show the actors and lead the actors. Yes. They, honestly, I had a big notebook and in the notebook was well, I had a big binder. And in the binder was my script um, storyboards, sometimes reference images, but yes, my, my dog eared 
30-year-old copy of The Dark Knight Returns was in the notebook as well. I laughed because he didn't go anywhere without it. No, I didn't go anywhere without it. And it's not, we weren't slavish about copying stuff. Some things I wanted to copy as closely as I could. Some things I wanted to vary from. And some things just you're telling a story using film. So you have to add shots and you have to do things that tell the story. But there were times where people, it was helpful to give people motivation. Like when we were shooting the the Joker sequence in Arkham Asylum at the end, I showed the actor playing the Joker, Carlos, I showed him some of the frames from The Dark Knight Returns, these, these drawings of the Joker wide-eyed staring through the window of the door, and it really kind of informed him. It really kind of inspired him. Um, the mutants, I would show photos of the mutants to people, or drawings of the mutants to people, and, and they'd get an idea. Um, the lighting, uh, Bob Clark, uh, the other pirate, um, Bob would look at the images and that would give him ideas for color and how to light certain things and, and how to go about certain styles. Um, Jason, yeah, Con- it, it yeah. served as your own storyboard just right there. Yeah. Which is the thing I had said that right from the very beginning, I just, um, I found the, I mean, all comics by, you know, by what the, by, by definition of what they are, all comics are visual, but there was something about the Dark Knight. There's a difference between visual and cinematic. And there was something about the Dark Knight that was so epically cinematic that it just, to me, it translated well to film. There's a lot of it that's very abstract, though. That's one thing about Frank Miller's drawing style in The Dark Knight is some of it was very highly interpretive. Here's a, here's a funny story for you. Um, the sequence with the taxi driver. And oh, yes. <laughs> the pimp and the prostitute, Silk and Joni, stop the taxi driver and they get into his taxi and there's that whole sequence. I could have sworn to you, I would have I would have laid money based on my memory that Silk and Joni were both black. And I think it was the way the dialogue was written because the way Silk's dialogue was, it was kind of slang. It was like, you, you met with my livelihood, Joni. You know, there was there was something about the way the dialogue was done that it just it sounded to me like he was doing like black slang. Mm -hmm. So so I'm talking to the actors about the characters and I pull open the comic book and I'll be damned. The taxi driver is defined. He's lit. You can see who he is. Joni and Silk are in silhouette. You don't see Joni and Silk. You, you don't know what nationality they are. You don't know anything about them. So I felt a little bad. I felt a little stupid. I felt like, well, shit, I just assumed these characters were black. And at that point, I had already cast Reggie Reese as Silk, the prostitute. And if you know Reggie, he was fine with that. He was cool. When I first approached him, I said, I said Reggie, how do you feel about being a, a, a pimp? Are you okay with that? He's like, no, 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 that's cool. And, you know, he brought his own wardrobe to it. He brought four variations of wardrobe. <laughs> Re Reggie was ready to do it, man. Reggie was pumped. But then I thought about it, and I thought, okay, let's let's flip directions here. Because then I had started looking for black actresses to play a prostitute. And that's a delicate situation to have with any actress. But then you're going to a black actress, and you're saying, I want you to play this drugged-out, tweaked prostitute. Well, then I started thinking, well, what the hell with it? What if, what if it's a white prostitute? And that's when I found um, Brianna. Brianna Gilliman, um, and she was great as Joni. So, 
So that was a case where the comic book and sticking closely to the comic book kind of came around and sort of bit me on the ass a little bit where, okay, the comic book is a little too abstract here. The comic book is open to interpretation. And I know there's going to be fans out there who are going to see it and go, no, this should have been like this. And this should have been like that. And, you know, with some of the squiggly lines in the original comic, it could have been this, it could have been that, but Hopefully I got the spirit intact. That's really the, the thing I think that's the most important is did I get the spirit right. Quick side note about Brianna. She actually appears in the film as two different characters. Yeah. So oh. she plays the, the prostitute, but we filmed another scene earlier and she was in the earlier scene. And then Wyatt was like, I wonder if Brianna could play this prostitute. So when, when Bruce Wayne is walking down the street and there's all the people at the uh, sidewalk cafe area, um, and you've got one of the guys goes, Hey, there's Bruce Wayne. Mm. The, girl, the girl sitting at the table with him is, uh, is actually the same gal, but she's, uh, but she's wearing a wig as the prostitute. As the prostitute, she's wearing a wig. And I think I was just thinking, I was just mulling this over and watching the film, watching the footage one day. And I came across that shot and I saw Brianna sitting there and I thought, you know, she kind of left an impression on me the first time I met her just as an extra. And she's done a lot of photo work and she's a fangirl and she's got all kinds of crazy costumes she's and model? stuff. She's a model. She's a photo model and she's a huge Star Wars fan. And so when I approached her about being the prostitute character, she looked so different as the prostitute that I wasn't worried about people recognizing her as the extra in that scene. So that's a little Easter egg for people watching the film, if they can see, if they can spot Brianna in the other scene. And that was actually her husband. Her husband, uh, William, is the one who says, hey, it's Bruce Wayne. Um, so, and then, of course, he came out the night she played the prostitute and helped out that night. So. That night was so <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, and she's wearing so little clothes and uh, very yeah. cold night. Yeah. Well, she got paid double, right? Yeah, she did. Yeah, yeah, she, what's, what's, what's nothing times two? Yeah, exactly. Well, she got uh, she got two Jimmy John sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> now uh, we we talked a bit about the the differences. How uh, from your take on it to the animated version. Now in the animated version, they went really heavy on the mutant lingo. A lot of that chicken legs, licking eggs, all that stuff. Right. Uh, you you had that in there but uh, not near as much as they really leaned into it in the animated version. Uh, did you feel that it it's hard to pull that kind of stuff off in live action? Um, I think if, I think if maybe I had, gosh, and I'm trying to think of the politically correct way to say this. Um, <laughs> well, no, I think, I think Bill Finkbeiner as Spike probably could have done it. Um, some of the other actors um, were probably not as experienced enough and I don't think would have had um, as easy a time with it. But the other thing, too, is that I don't, you know, I'm very proud of the project, but I have no delusions. It is what it is. It's not the greatest film ever made. It might be the greatest fan film ever made, <laughs> but it's not the greatest film ever made. But it's. You know, it's a $2,000 film that we did when we could. And I think it was easier just to get these guys to do what they could versus trying to add all that extra stuff. You know, if like with some people, like with uh, the guy playing Jim Gordon and with uh, Alfred the Butler, 
those guys were seasoned enough and experienced enough and, and so fast and quick on the uptake, I could throw them curves or I could ask more from them. But there were certain things where, you know, I'm just lucky I got all these guys on set at one point and we pulled this off. I think about the entirety of the car chase at the end, Batman jumping on the hood, the crash, Batman flying off the hood, the cops showing up, chasing them into the warehouse, them coming out of the warehouse, the guy getting pulled through the floor, and then all the way up through Batman saying goodbye and jumping over the top of the fence. The fact that we even accomplished it, let alone throw in extra stuff. So I think about the mutants and I think, you know, if we'd had a little more time and a little bit more money and time to sit down and like get those guys together a couple of times and work all that stuff out, it would have been awesome. It really would have been awesome. I just, I was sort of kind of fighting. I was picking my battles, if you will. So trying to get the mutants to be really, really heightened and different and odd, you know, I couldn't even, I couldn't even get them bald, you know, (laughs) I think you know maybe if I could have found them all easily enough and found them all bald, maybe my ambition would have run a little higher. But sometimes I was, you know, like I say, sometimes I was lucky to get them to hit the mark and to get them to go down when I hit them. So if we got that, I was thrilled. You know, I was I, I don't mean to say I was going for less than I could have had, but I was trying to be realistic. I was doing a damn Batman film. You know, I was lu- I was lucky to make my day sometimes, let alone. Well, and you, you still know. had added dialogue. I mean, the, the mutants in particular, there's dialogue that's a little different than in the book. Yeah, a little bit. Now, the warehouse scene, that's that's the one scene that really shows um, more of your your imagination and your skill as a as a as a writer and a director because the scene where, you know, Batman is in a position and he's like there are seven working positions sure. from right here. I love that because, you know, I've been reading this book as long as you have. And I always wondered, what are the seven moves? <laughs> so two, we get to see the seven moves, yeah. right? So that's yeah, two, pretty cool. Two interesting things. Um, first of all, I swear from the very first time I read the comic all those years ago, and this has happened to me a couple of times throughout my career. The first time I read the comic, I imagined in my head, oh, wouldn't it be awesome if like time froze and you saw each of the things that he was going to do and then you went back to real time and boom, you saw the final thing play out. Then a few years back when I saw, um, what's his name? Uh, it's the, the, yes, when I saw the uh, Richie, what's his name? The, the director. When I saw the Robert Downey Jr., yeah, Guy Ritchie. When I saw Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes and I saw them do something like that, I was like, oh, damn, they did it. And they yeah. did it so well. And I still decided, well, I'm still going to do it and I'm still going <laughs> to do something similar. But no, when those guys did it, I was like, oh, man, they, they beat me to it. They got it. And they did it. They did it so well. Funny enough, though, I've got this one friend, uh, Tom Seymour. Tom Seymour is an effects guy. He works in Los Angeles. Um and Tom is he's like a second or third degree black belt. It, it, if anybody knows anything about martial arts, it's Tom. And I went to Tom and I talked to him about that scene in the comic. And I said, what, what, are, what would the seven defenses be? What do you think he's talking about? And Tom said, honestly, Wyatt, I have no idea what the hell Frank Miller's re- referring to. He says, I, I don't. He says, there are things you do. He said, but like seven key working defenses from this position 
he said, I think that's all just sort of some kind of made up stuff that sounds cool. So once Tom said that to me, that sort of gave me open permission to do what the heck I wanted to. Um, so, so we kind of made some stuff up and I'm not a trained martial artist, but I have done enough fight stuff on film and have been taught enough basics that there's two ways you can go. I spend a lot of time stressing over, wow, what's the professional way to do this? And maybe I should consult with a martial artist or maybe I should talk to some stunt men. And then I was like, you know what the hell with it? Why don't you do what you know? like Batman would do what you're comfortable with, do what works for you. So I started doing the stuff that I knew and we went down in the basement one day or we went down in the alley and somebody put a gun to the back of my head. And I was like, okay, I'm in this position. What am I going to do? I got a gun to my head. And we just started coming up with stuff. And those were the seven work, the seven working defenses that we came up with. Now, obviously Batman doesn't kill and he's not going to shoot a guy in the face. But it was an option. <laughs> it was an option. That was that was one of the working defenses that he's been trained yep. in. Right. There are there are three of them that kill. So you know, but then when it came to the one that hurts, it's very clear in the comic book. There's a case where the comic book helped because the comic book has a nice wide drawn image of him doing a side thrust kick, and clearly he dislocates that guy's hip. So we kind of duplicated that. There were there were a lot of moments that informed us from the comic, but then there were key moments that were, okay, this has to match. This has to be this. And that was one of those moments. Um, throwing, throwing a spike into an electrified wall of lights, that had to be, that had to match. Um, when I turn around and I face the camera and I say, back off these men are mine that had to match you know there were just there were moments uh, when i was watching the television and i snap uh when i walk up to the window and i'm looking out the window and i see the bat fly by and you see the the cross of uh, shadow across my face that had to match you notice he switched into the first person because he does believe that he is <laughs> bruce wayne's last batman <laughs> hey What's- What's fun is that ever since the premiere, I've now got people on Facebook and friends referring to me as Batman now. So it's, you know, I'm going to have to, Gail's going to have to keep a tape measure on my head to make (laughs) make sure it doesn't get too big. But yeah, that that stuff, the night after the screening, that stuff started. So, you know, hopefully it'll just continue. Um, But I mentioned the uh, scene in his uh, living room when he's watching TV and he snaps, I toyed with, and I went back and forth on in the graphic novel, he imagines the giant bat flying at him and crashing through the window. And I toyed with actually doing that or not doing that. And I kind of messed around with the idea of a giant puppeteered bat on wires and crashing it through an actual window and breaking the glass and I think it's a really amazing image. I think it's really cool, but it's also very abstract and it's very interpretive. And, you know, obviously a giant bat didn't crash through the window in that scene. It was just something in his head. So I decided to kind of split the difference and go with him seeing a bat and then he loses it. And then, of course, I added the scream. I added the primal scream where he looks up and just screams his guts out um, in anger. 
So, but yeah, I, I, there were things I toyed with and I, I think we could have done the bat. We could have done the bat crashing through the window. I just decided not to go there. I just decided that was a little too, you know, a little, a little too direct a uh, translation of the comic. So uh, you did give us a white eyed Batman in live action. So thank yes. you for that. Oh, no. And you know, having done it now, I don't know why the hell you guys haven't gotten one sooner because if I can do it and I can do it and be able to see what the hell I'm doing and be able to hit my marks and grab weapons and defend myself in the fight scene, I do not know why another film hasn't done it because then you deal with the whole ridiculous part of him having to black out his eyes. You know, and the area around his eyes, the area around his eyes. And we've, you know, we've infamously seen movies where, you know, he's got his eyes blacked out and then you cut away and cut back. And all of a sudden his eyes aren't blacked out and he takes off the cowl. There's no black on it. Yeah, he pulls it off and there's no guy liner on. This is Professor Pig. Thanking you for listening to Bat Force Radio. As some of you may already know, Batman has stuck me and thrown me into Arkham Asylum. However, I do have an accomplice who is out there right now at this very minute, kidnapping all the good people of Gotham, chopping them up into bits, and stuffing them in his trunk. Yes, <laughs> I'm talking about the trunkler. The trunkler, and he will come for the children of Gotham in the night. <laughs> He will make them perfect. He will make them just like Pig. He will make them beautiful. (laughs) Well, by the time we set up the big, huge light and we lit up the side of the building, the only conditions I couldn't see out of is when really bright light was hitting the mesh eyes directly. And so they would kind of white out. Most of the time, my, my view was just kind of white and hazy, but I could see things clearly. When a bright light hit the mask, those eyes went white. So I got up there on the edge of that roof and that light was shining <laughs> directly in my eyes. And I'm like, okay, I can't run along the edge of the roof <laughs> off the ground blind. So the first thing I had to do was tear the mash out of the mask. And I, and then I couldn't turn and look at the camera. So a minor sacrifice, but rather than fall off the edge of the roof, I thought I'll take the mesh out. Our insurance um, wasn't that good. <laughs> and, there were a couple other things I did. Um, some of the scenes in the mall, I didn't have uh, in the arcade, I guess. In the arcade, I didn't have the mesh in because I was aiming pretty close to those guys' faces when I was punching at them. So I didn't have the mesh in. But we weren't seeing your face at that point. But we weren't really seeing. We're kind of looking over my shoulder at that point, so it didn't really matter. And I feel like there was another thing. I think when I crashed through the glass of the boiler room door and I grabbed the mugger and I pulled the mugger up through the door. I had to come through the glass and I had to grab his hand and I had to grab his head and rather than risk it and poke him in the eye or, you know, grab him in the wrong place. We took the mesh out for that stuff too, so that I could see what the heck I was doing. Um, But it's like anything, you keep the mask on long enough and you get really comfortable to it. Another interesting thing with the mask was I never liked what Christian Bale, I like Christian Bale, but I didn't like, I didn't like the way he spoke as Batman, but I also, his mouth was open a lot. Like he'd say a line oh, of dog dialogue, it. you know, mouth breathing. Yeah, he, he, re- he really, he really looked like his Batman needed to do some serious cardio. 
<laughs> and it was weird. It was like, you know, he'd, because I'm not wearing hockey pads. And then he'd let his mouth hang open. <laughs> yeah, like he's out of breath. The funny thing was, is the first time I put the cowl on and the first time we shot with the cowl, I realized I was having a hell of a time breathing through my nose. <laughs> and I found myself with my mouth hanging open. And I was like, oh, no. I cannot be a mouth breather Batman. So I ended up modifying the mask and I cut some nose holes in it. And I had to consciously keep my mouth shut in a lot of scenes to avoid that same thing. But I get it now. You stick that mask on and you suddenly can't breathe. And the first thing you do is open your mouth. So I have a little more sympathy for Christian Bale now. So, yeah. But, but it's, it doesn't excuse the voice. No, it, do, it, <laughs> it does not excuse the voice. You still have to be able to understand him. You, know, you still have to know what the heck he's talking about. So. <laughs> Did you have a favorite scene that you filmed? You know, I'm really, really proud of that taxi scene. I, I'm really, really happy with how that turned out. Um, it was a, a scene that it went fairly quickly. I mean, we were still on set for eight hours, but we got a lot of footage in a very short period of time. Everybody was on. Um, Jason playing the taxi driver, Brianna playing the, the prostitute, Reggie playing the pimp. It just, the lighting came together. The can I don't even think we did any of the takes more than two or three times tops. And I was going to say that was one, probably one of my favorite too, because I mean, it literally looked like it jumped off the page and yeah. I had my book and I was going mm. along with it and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> they, they nailed this scene. This is awesome. I loved it. That scene felt good when we were shooting it. A, a lot of scenes I'd shoot and then I was exhausted and I'd come home and I'd put the footage on the computer and I'd leave it alone for a little while. Maybe I'd come back a week or two later and I'd start editing. The taxi footage, I came home that night, I put it on the computer, I got up the following day and I started editing immediately. I think I had that scene done a day or two later because I just was so excited about it. Um, compared to other scenes, like the racing scene, the racing scene came together over the course of many months because there was a lot of headaches involved in the racing scene. So we got some scenes one day, we got other car shots another day. Then we came back and got shots of Carol Ferris and her crew in the tower and then it was months and months and months before we got the miniatures. So that whole scene was never completed until a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago. Okay. Other so was the first, you know, it starts off in the in the indie car. Is that did you guys really get an indie car out there, or is that a miniature? It was yeah. actually, uh, it was actually a. They call them F one thousand. They call them um, Formula one thousand. And the F one thousand, actually, I take that back. It's not Formula one thousand. It's F one thousand because the one thousand refers to the weight of the car, which is something I learned. The entire car and the driver combined have to weigh less than a thousand pounds um, to mm. qualify. So it's it's an F one thousand car. But what happened was, and this is another example of the the stuff you get when you ask for it. A couple of years ago, Gail was at like a, a... It was a networking event, yeah. actually at a go-kart place. <laughs> so she's different to do. She's at this networking event, and she meets this woman named Sheila. And she and Sheila get along. Sheila's cool. And Sheila, off the cuff, goes, hey, if you guys ever need a race well, she car... Goes, I used to be a race car driver, by the way, so this go-kart thing's kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, she goes, yeah, so if you ever need any race car drivers, let me know. And at this point, Wyatt had already been talking about the opening scene to the dark Knight returns. So it was in my brain, even though we weren't even close to filming. And I'm like, 
I'm I'm going to take you up on that. It's going to be a while, but I'm going to take you up on that. So we go back to her and we say, Sheila, so what's your association to race cars? And she goes, well, I'm a member of the SCCA, which is the Sports Car Club of America. And she said, we organize driving events over at this racetrack in Illinois. And if you know the St. Louis area, we've got the St. Louis metro area, which is in Missouri. But then just across the Mississippi River in Illinois is... Metro East, Metro East, which is a cluster of little towns. So just across the river in Illinois is this massive NASCAR style racetrack called Gateway. So Gateway Motorsports Park is on the other side of the the river. And she would organize these racing events over at Gateway Motorsports Park. And they had like six events a year. So she starts telling me about it and she says, yeah, I can get you onto the track. I can get you in good positions to film. I can get you permission. We can get insurance worked out. She said, but you need a car. So then she starts introducing me to all the different types of cars, the different shapes, the different drivers. And finally, I find out about F1000 cars and I see this one car and I meet this driver and his name was Steve Hamilton. And he's like a wealthy local businessman. And So Steve runs his company, and then in his spare time, he tinkers with the race car and gets into local races. Um, And he was fascinated. He was like, yeah, Batman film, be Bruce (laughs) Wayne on camera. That'd be awesome. So through this huge conglomeration of permissions and people coming together, we spent um, a couple days over at Gateway, and we were mounting GoPros to cars. So we had, you know, points of view shots. We had, you know, a, a car driving ahead with a camera pointed back. Then we had a car up in the, a camera up in the stands, and we, we were able to piece this whole sequence together. But uh, F1000s are notoriously touchy, and the first day we went out there to shot, he basically, I think, he blew out an oil gasket of some kind. Mm. So. He got up to speed. He did a lap or two. We were just starting to get some shots. Boom, he blew it, and we didn't get any more footage that day. And then we had to come back another day and shoot again, and there were other engine problems and other issues to deal with. So, you know, this is the whole free versus paid thing. It's like, well, we're not paying you guys, and we're not paying to repair your cars, and we're not renting this stuff, and we're not supplying you with a crew. So... If your car's broken and we can't shoot anymore today, then we can't shoot anymore today. So it took us months to get all the shots in the can. And really? some of it some of it was skin of our teeth. Some of those shots, I had one pass. Like I mounted a GoPro, we did a lap, and we got the shot, and that's it. Um, so, but, but yeah, to me, it's like a million dollars worth of production value, and we got it. And that was one very happy day. I was driving home that day very, very happy. I was probably driving home with the radio turned up, singing at the top of my lungs. That was a good, good day when we finished all that stuff. And then when we're shooting Carol Ferris up in the control tower, the morning that actress showed up, Taylor, she was sick as a dog. She was ready to hurl at any moment. But she was a trooper, and she hung in there, and we managed to get all of her shots and then let her go home and go to sleep. Um so, uh, yeah, it, 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 we had our trials and tribulations, but... Uh, but despite the fact that it was months to get that done, it was, what, four days of being at the racetrack? Yeah, maybe four days total, not counting scouting and, yeah, yeah. you know, finding all the angles and stuff. Yeah. We actually shot with a drone at the racetrack as well. We had a drone <laughs> flying overhead, but a lot of those shots, for whatever reason, didn't work out. I ultimately didn't use any of them in the film because it was kind of inconsistent in... 
One thing you will notice is even though we tell you in the film he's half a lap ahead of the pack, you really never see any of the other race cars. You see some of the race cars in a wide shot, and those are cars that were put in later. That's because we didn't have 20 race cars racing around. <laughs> I, I was wondering about that. We have four or five. He's really far ahead. Yeah. yeah, he was he was so far ahead you didn't have to see all the other race cars. We had other race cars, but because of the 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 very few times we had a chance to shoot and during these racing events, you have to understand too, they'd race like three or four different classes of cars. So F1000s would race at like eight o'clock, 12 noon, and four o'clock. And they'd race like 12 laps each time. So you'd get 12 laps three times a day. Sounds like a lot, but given the problems with cameras, given the problems with cars, given the problems with framing stuff and shooting stuff at that speed, that basically meant, you know, like the first session was testing. The second session, maybe you got a couple of good shots. The third session was do or die. So it, unfortunately what happened is by the time we were started getting good shots, we couldn't get the other cars in the right formation at the right time. So there were like four other cars on the track, but they were never close enough or in, they were either ahead of him right behind him or completely on the other side, on the other side of the track. So there was never a shot. Like I have shots where there's another race car right on his tail but then that doesn't match up with anything else I have. And it also doesn't make sense when the crash comes. And then I would have had to have had the other car right there in the crash with it. So, so we made up some dialogue that he was half a lap ahead of the pack and he needed to ease off a bit. And then we put in a couple of miniature cars racing by in another shot. And, you know, you guys are the first ones to notice it. So, <laughs> well, no, I mean, that was a, that's a very technical scene. And to start yeah. the film that way is I was like, wow, these they're really going for it. <laughs> it was sort of the, it was sort of the unicorn. It was the golden egg of this piece and everything else in the, in the film. I knew there were some things that would be tough. I knew that it was going to be a lot of hard work. The racetrack was the wild card. And I felt like, man, if we can nail the racetrack, everything else is downhill from here. I mean, even if I have to change things or rewrite things, I can do the rest of this film. I know I can. This racetrack scene, good God. And you know, I played, (laughs) I I thought, I'm not a huge fan of CGI. I like using the computer. I think the computer is great for putting stuff together, but I'm not a huge fan of pure CGI. But I thought, well, maybe I could do a CGI race sequence. And then I thought, well, maybe I can get, remote controlled cars and I can get really nice looking race cars and we'll find a small track somewhere or we'll build a track on somebody's in somebody's yard and we'll shoot this completely in miniature. So my, I was thinking it through in my head, but it's one of those things that if I'd worried about too much, when we started the project, I never would have started the project, but it was sort of the big hurdle. Once we got the racetrack in the can, literally everything was downhill from there. It all, it all was better after that. So. so did so did you try to shoot it sequentially or just whenever scenes and, and locations came available? Whenever scenes and locations came available. That was really the main thing. Um, we kind of got jump started. We actually shot the Arkham Asylum sequence first. It's the last thing in the film. It's the first thing we shot. And that had to do with the actor playing the Joker. The actor playing the Joker, mm-hmm. Carlos Leon, He used to be based in St. Louis. He now splits his time between Miami and Los Angeles. 
So I thought about him being the Joker, but I couldn't afford to fly him in. I couldn't afford to put him up. So I called him in like late April of 2015. I called him like the last week of April. I said, hey, Carlos, I got this Batman project I'm doing. I want you to play the Joker. <laughs> and he was all excited. He was like, oh, I'd love to do this. So I said, look, I can't afford to fly you in. Are, is there a time you're going to be coming through St. Louis? Because he still had he had like property here. He had a house that was up for sale. And I knew he occasionally came to town. So I said, so if you're ever in town in the next, I don't know, nine months, a year or so, if you're going to be here on a vacation and you can spare a day, you know, that's when we'll shoot it. So he checks his schedule and he gets back to me and he goes, June 6th. I'm like, June 6th? He's like, yep, I'll be in town June 6th. I can do it June 6th. And that was like five or six weeks away. And I was like, no. Okay. All right. That's the start of production. Now okay. we need to find an asylum. Yep. I was like, all right, cool. And done. If you're going to be in town June 6th, then that's when production starts. And so we had to work backward from there. We still had to cast the two doctors. We had to find the asylum. Um, and we had to work backwards from there and just make it go. The only thing then that started to sort of guide the scenes was I, I did want to shoot my Bruce Wayne stuff first while I had the full beard. And then shave and finish the rest of it. Now, growing a beard back for me is not a big deal, but clearly it would take a couple of weeks. So if I had to go back and forth between shaved and unshaved, there would have needed to be some time built in. Um, but at a certain point, we'd gotten enough of the Bruce Wayne scenes done that I said, OK, let's just get all the Bruce Wayne stuff done. And then the Batman stuff will catch whenever. And I'll just stay clean shaven from here on out. So and then obviously in the comic book. He only had a mustache, but but because Gordon also had a mustache, I said, okay, let's give Gordon the mustache because that's sort of his thing, and then I'll do the full beard, and, and I think I look better with a full beard anyway. And then it's a bigger change. So when he turns around in the Batcave and his whole face is shaved, then it's a bigger effect. So I like that. I like that, Carl. Yeah. That, that was good. Plus it also you know showed a little more age. Um, yes. you know, especially because your beard, your yeah, you had a little more gray in your beard and that's yeah. not a knock on you. It's just, it showed more age. And, and I really thought that, that, that was a good choice. I'm not taking it as a knock because I'll tell you what, I feel, I feel every bit my age on this film. <laughs> you, you fill out the suit well, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I'll tell you what, um, I was 50 when I wrote this, I was 51 when we started shooting. I'm 52 now. Bruce Wayne was 55 in the comic book. It was hard enough to do this at 51 and 52. I cannot imagine what it would be like doing this three years from now. And I started training. I started strength training in like February of 2015. I started really hitting the weights pretty hard in like June or July of 2015. By October of 2015, I was pretty much ready to be on camera and then I kind of continued the training through the rest of the shoot. I still don't feel like I lost enough weight or put on enough muscle. But just doing what I did, uh, it was tiring. It was exhausting. I couldn't eat donuts. Um, <laughs> I, I had to cut back on the sugar. And I've always tried to stay in shape and I've always been active. But hitting it hard and trying to put on some, some muscle – I found out that I have arthritis in my shoulders. I found out that I have trick knees. Um, and there were days where I would shoot and 
I would come home and I could, I, I was in a knot by the time I got home and the following morning, I couldn't even sit up in bed. I'd have to like roll sideways and sort of fall out of bed because I was so sore and so stiff. So, you know, I don't, I, I can't imagine having done this much older than this. Um, I'm glad I did it now. I'm glad I did it now and tried to play, <laughs> play up my age a little bit more. Cause we grayed my hair down a lot. And then each day I would put a little shadow under the eye and I would kind of accent the wrinkles around my eyes and I would age myself up a little. I didn't want to get nuts with it, but I would add a little age to it when, when we would shoot. So yeah. Now, on, on the topic of, uh, of yourself as Batman in the suit. Now you're the second live action Batman that we've had on the show. We previously had uh, Kevin Porter on. Uh, he plays Batman for the Bat in the Sun videos, right? Uh, yes, like Batman versus Darth Vader, all that stuff, and you know, sure. he's fantastic too. Uh, I'd like to get your opinions on live action Batmans. Uh, how do you how do you rank? You know, who's your Batman, and kind of how do you rank uh, everyone that we've had so far? You know, I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but I think my favorite Bruce Wayne is still. I'm saying Bruce Wayne now. My favorite Bruce Wayne, I think, is Michael Keaton, yeah. believe it or not. And, and I think that's just because – here's the tough thing with Batman and Bruce Wayne in general. Bruce Wayne a lot of times is brooding and serious, and even Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne, he tried to make him kind of a playboy. He tried to make him kind of a womanizer – kind of a hard drinking, hard partying dude. But in the movies, we still always saw him as being kind of morose and kind of, you know, kind of serious about everything. And all of them have been really serious. So you get serious Bruce Wayne, and then you get even more serious and more angry Batman. So it's really easy for Batman and Bruce Wayne to trip over into morose and annoying. Um, I know that my bat, my, my Bruce Wayne by default, because he's 55 year old, angry, depressed Bruce Wayne, he's going to be a more serious Bruce Wayne too. But I tried to give you a little more complexity and a little bit more motivation. I tried to give you a, an occasional smile or two, but Michael Keaton, definitely. I think my favorite as far as Bruce Wayne is concerned. Um, I like, a lot of what Christian Bale did, and I like a lot of what Affleck did, but I don't think either. I don't think we've seen the definitive live-action Batman yet in the feature films because I think Batman. The mistake is to play him big and angry and loud and mad, and that's not what Batman is. Batman is more controlled than that. Yes, he's scary, but. You know, guys, I may have to go back to uh, Michael Keaton for both Bruce Wayne and <laughs> Batman. I think his Batman, he was physically a smaller guy. I have issues with some of Tim Burton's stuff, but he really had the range and he had the subtlety. Um, and as Batman, he knew when to play it big and when to play it small. Um, he, he really did a lot of good stuff. I would have liked to have seen like Michael Keaton's performance meshed with like Christian Bale's suit or Ben Affleck's suit. I think Ben Affleck's suit 
is just brilliant looking. Of course, it's based on the Dark Knight Returns, but um, I think it's a brilliant looking suit. Um, and this coming from a guy who is incredibly skeptical about Ben Affleck. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what I'm willing to I'm willing to hold my breath and see what happens with Ben Affleck on his standalone Batman film and and I think already Justice League looks better and more entertaining um, and I'm not an Affleck hater I just didn't I think Affleck was too huge an actor too big of a name um, so I thought his personality and his fame was going to get in the way Um it's worked out okay. I mean, other than, you know, Batman versus Superman being the train wreck that it was. Um, but it was just such a somber downbeat, you know, uh, you know, such a sad affair for all the actors. Um, but no, I, I think Keaton, I think Keaton still got it. You know, I think he's probably still the overall best in terms of acting and, and portrayal. There's snippets and bits of the other ones here and there that I think are really good. But um, I've done a lot of suit acting and I've done a lot of character acting and it takes a lot to get a character through all that rubber and, and all that foam. Um, so what would you think if, uh, by the grace of, of, of God, if Michael Keaton agreed to do a live action Dark Knight Returns based film? Wow, that's interesting. From an acting standpoint, I think he'd be amazing. And if you see him now, he's, you know, he's got the gray hair and the receding hairline and he's got the craggy face. And I think from an acting standpoint, he could nail it. Um, and I'm of two minds about the physique. On the one hand, I think he's a little small and I can't imagine, even if he put on 50 pounds of muscle, I don't know if he'd be an imposing enough figure. But I have an issue with a lot of superheroes in that, okay, in the Dark Knight Returns, Batman, he's massive. He's like six and a half feet tall. He's like a 250-pound guy. He's built like a linebacker. He's just a massive guy. I mean, to the point where if you see Bruce Wayne, if you see that version of Bruce Wayne on the street, you're going to look at him and you're going to go, wow, that's a big guy. I mean, he almost is too obvious and almost draws too much attention to himself. I get it. He's a superhero. You want to emphasize his physique. You want to show how big and strong he is. But I think someone like Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man makes a lot more sense and is a lot more realistic. And then if you have Superman, who's an alien from another planet, or you have Captain America who's been injected with a chemical and treated to a process that's made him the way he is. Or if you have Thor, who's just, you know, a freaking god, obviously they have the physiques that they do. But I, I have a I'm more the the Neil Adams 1970s era Batman, where he was tall and lean and muscular. But once you start getting into bodybuilder physiques, I know bodybuilders and I know how much time they spend on their bodies. And I know how hard it is to do that. And I think most real superheroes, they're strong, they're big, they're, they're, they're trained to a level of physical you know, perfection. But that doesn't mean they necessarily look like photo models. I mean, they should be big and strong. So, But to back to your original question, I think Keaton's acting would be brilliant if they could somehow sell him as having the right physique. If they could sell him with the body um, and the physique to stand up 
to, to the other characters in the film. Or maybe, you know, they just cast a really short guy as mutant leader. You know? Well, I think, and, and that's one thing that, um, you know, Tim Burton explained with his Batman, because, you know, that movie came out when, you know, I was a teenager and, you know, that was for a lot of us, the, the first introduction to, you know, seeing this character besides the 66, you know, classic Adam West Batman. And it was, very, I grew up. yeah. And I could see some of that in this film, which I, I, I really liked is that you put all of your influences into it, not just Frank Miller, but I saw a little bit of Adam West. I saw a little bit of Keaton. And uh, then there's also the Frank Miller reference, but Tim Burton was like his Batman, you know, the suit, he explained that, yeah, his physique is a little small, so he needed the armor to disguise himself too for that added protection and that's how he explained why Batman, you know, wore that armor suit, you know, with the chiseled abs and whatnot. So I don't know. I think it'd be kind of cool if, if he reprised the role and they kind of, you know, if gave it a go. But Let's who knows? Thoughts. Yeah, um, I've done the fantasy casting throughout the years and I've talked to people <laughs> over the years. And I've had friends who've said, you know, Patrick Stewart would be the Dark Knight and people who said, you know, put put Brian Dennehy on a diet and Brian Dennehy could be the dark Knight, And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different people who, who probably could do. Uh, I think it, I think it was a uh, Neil Adams that said, uh, Ted Danson. There you go. Really? Seriously. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. And you know, back in the day, he's back, got the jaw. yeah, back in the yeah. day, I couldn't see it as he's gotten a little older and a little more gruff. I could kind of see it. I was a big fan of Becker and yeah. in the, in the series Becker, Ted Danson is just a complete ass, and I love that. I, I thought he did a great job. But, you know, I want to touch on fan films for a second. We're talking about character and stuff. And one thing I hope this that I was able to do differently and something that I hope fans who watch it see is I get frustrated with a lot of fan films because of what they think makes a fan film. Like... I'm so sick of seeing Star Wars fan films and it's just 10 or 15 minute long lightsaber battle. I'm sorry, lightsaber battles are not what Star Wars is about. I'm sick of, you know, superhero fan films where it's just, okay, the fan film starts and you fight for 10 minutes. I mean, the fighting and the action is part of it, but if you don't have the character and you don't have the development of it, um, to a certain degree, you say, boom, here's Batman. You know, everyone knows who Batman is. Boom, let's go. But you're still, you're telling a story. And I've seen so many of these things where it's like, okay, here's our Star Wars characters. Now they're going to fight with lightsabers, you know? Okay, I don't know who they are, though. I don't know who these characters are. I don't care. I see a lot of superhero films. If you're going to make a superhero film, a fan film that's all action, all fighting, it better be the best, coolest, most amazing Jackie Chan stuff I've ever seen. (laughs) Or I'm just going to sit there and go, meh. And I've done that with so many of them. There's a Star Wars fan film. I admire the production of it. It's called, uh, and, and I could be, this. these could be fighting words. I don't know. There's a Star Wars fan film called Darth Maul Apprentice. And Darth Maul Apprentice is, it's really, really well made. But it's literally like Darth Maul taking on like five or six Jedis. And it's like a five or t- I mean, that, it's like a ten minute, twelve minute long lightsaber fight in a forest, and it's incredibly well done and very well choreographed. But that's pretty much the whole film. 
Um, and then there's this new one, though, by contrast, called Hoshino. And I just saw Hoshino. It's by a filmmaker named Stephen Vitale. And it's about a young Jedi in training. And it begins, and she's taking out her lightsaber, and she's assembling her lightsaber. And you think, oh, God, here we go, another Star Wars film, and all it is is lightsaber fights. But then it flashes back to her training, and it shows you what she went through and what she learned. And it shows her being blinded. She's accidentally blinded during her Jedi training, and then it cuts back to modern time, and she's finished putting her lightsaber together just as somebody attacks her, and she defends herself. And she defends herself with the Force. She doesn't even use the lightsaber. So that was an example of, of a really nice you know, film with character development um, and a lot of good stuff in it. But um, yeah, but, but there's, there's some great fan films out there, you know, Batman Dead End. Grayson, I mean, uh, there's a there's a uh, a storm X Men fan film yes. that I'm really fond of called Rain. Rain, yep, yep, I've, I've seen. Speaking that. of speaking of Dead End, mm-hmm. I heard a certain director came to the premiere. <laughs> Man, if you could have seen, I had to pick my jaw up off the floor. That was the craziest thing. A little history on Sandy and I. Um, Sandy and I have known each other. Uh, we probably, I don't know if we Sandy met. Sandy Calora, right? Sandy Calora, bat, writer, director of Batman Dead End and, and filmmaker and, and creative artist of, of many different talents. I don't know if we met in the late 80s or the early 90s, but we probably met, we met inadvertently because of Steve Wang. Um, Sandy, Steve Wang did a film called Hell Comes to Frogtown. And Steve Wang did all these amazing frog masks and costumes for this ridiculous action film that was actually a lot of fun and i think sandy admired steve's work so much that when they made the sequel uh frogtown 2 sandy took over and did all the frogs and all the masks and stuff for frogtown 2 i did some special effects and props and miniatures and stuff on frogtown 2 um hell comes to frogtown is a pretty cool little low budget film frogtown 2 is a piece of crap it's a hateful piece of crap. Sandy's frogs are awesome. My miniatures are great. The film is a piece of crap. Um, but Sandy and I got to know each other on Frogtown. And, you know, trial by fire. You know, it's low-budget crap. Pulling stuff out of our asses at the 11th hour. Making something out of nothing for zero dollars. So we got to be friends. And we we bump into each other and work together through the years. And then he did a feature film. And then I did a feature film. And we'd send each other our feature films. But eventually I moved back to St. Louis and it had been, I don't even want to tell you how many years it had been since we'd actually seen each other physically. We talked, we emailed, we Facebooked, but I mean, it might've been 10 plus years, 12 plus years since we'd seen each other. And you let him know that you were working on this, right? Yeah. I thought, you know, Sandy's so predominant in the fan film world and he's so well known for this Batman film. And I respect him both as a filmmaker and a friend. And what I didn't want is if I released my Batman film and it hit and it was successful, I didn't want people walking up to him or, you know, people from fan sites and webs. I didn't want Harry Knowles from Ain't It Cool contacting Sandy and going, so Sandy, what do you think about this uh, Dark Knight Returns film? And Sandy going, what, what, what Dark Knight Return film? I didn't want Sandy to be blindsided. But also too, I started showing Sandy stuff early enough in the process. Um, I started showing him edited scenes and he started getting his feedback on stuff. And he gave me some thoughts on editing and some thoughts on, on design and color and stuff. 
Um, and then I showed him, here's the funny part. Here's where it, here's where it all led up to the other day. I sent him a link to the completed film or the mostly completed film. And I didn't hear anything back. And like 48 hours went by and I thought, Oh shit, he doesn't like it. He's watched <laughs> it and it's not what he thinks it is. So there I am Monday night at the premiere of the dark Knight returns at this big theater here in St. Louis for the international film festival. And Sandy walks into the theater. And I mean, literally <laughs> I haven't seen this guy in person in years and I was just awestruck. I was, I was dumbfounded, but you know, he, he had time. He had, he had the flight. He decided to come in and support. And I think he'd gotten the link online and decided, well, what the hell? I don't want to watch the link. I want to watch the actual film. And really we, we, we had a couple minutes to talk. He got to see the film. We chatted. He got to meet some cast and crew and he was exhausted. He had to take off and leave. And we didn't even get to hang out the following day, but just the fact that he came out and supported, it speaks to, how good a friend he is, how much he's a supporter of the arts and independent filmmaking, how much of a Batman supporter he <laughs> is. Um, and then I, and I, at least I got to introduce him to the crowd. And I, and you know, this being a general audience, a lot of them didn't know what Batman dead end was, but the few of them who knew what bat dead, Batman dead end was were they were awestruck. They were, were heads craning, looking around to see where is this guy? Where is he? Yeah. There was actually, there was a friend of mine sitting a couple rows over from him that didn't know that he'd come who kept looking over at him and going, my God, is that Sandy Calora? <laughs> but, and it was kind of a moment of pride for me. Sandy gave me a huge, a huge thing there in that, you know, you tell people, you know, someone, you say you're friends with someone. They're like, yeah, yeah, sure. You are. Yeah, sure. You know, Sandy Calora. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. You know, the guy who made Batman dead end. And then Sandy showed up. I was like, see, I told you I knew Sandy Calora. <laughs> Sandy so. said it was worth the price of airfare to see the look on Wyatt's face when he walked in. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, he's been incredibly supportive and and really, uh, he, uh, you know, he's just, it's Batman. It's Batman and it's independent filmmaking. And he just came off of uh, doing a short film called Shallow Water. Water. And Shallow Water is going to be part of an anthology of horror films that he's going to put together. So he's... He's sort of fundraising and shooting each part of the anthology separately, but he just finished shooting Shallow Water, and then that's going to go together with two or three other films so that he can do this whole feature, um, kind of old-fashioned 1970s horror-style anthology. Um, so, yeah, I think he just wrapped that and kind of put that to bed, so he had a day or two free and was able to jet in for that. So, yeah, I mean, the experience of a lifetime, really. I, I told him I owed him one. I really do. I owe him one big time. Um, and I think he genuinely liked the film. I don't think he's blowing smoke. I asked him for comments and he didn't have any. He said, I loved it. It was great. It was awesome to see it on a big screen. So, so one, one of my best reviews so far. <laughs> so when is, uh, I know you you just debuted the film in the, uh, St. Louis international film festival and you have plans to release it online. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, We've decided on releasing it on YouTube on November 23rd, which is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving this year. Okay. Um, as for exact time, oh gosh, I don't know. We'll probably release it like six or seven o'clock in the evening. We haven't gotten that far. I'm kind of cutting a trailer right now and getting ready to start promoting it more heavily. But yeah, we're going to release on 
November 23rd, just the general YouTube audience. Um, we doing any other outlets or just strictly YouTube at this point? Uh, strictly YouTube at this point, whatever, you know, websites want to pick it up and promote it. I'll probably send it to a couple of the more well-known fan sites and see if they want to feature it. Um, and we talked some about other festivals and other outlets, but really it's, it's for the fans at this point. And I don't want to hold it up much longer. It's taken me so long to make it and, now that it's finally done and the cast and crew have gotten to see it, I really just want to kind of unleash it on the world and see what they have to say. And from there on out, I mean, if people want to screen it at conventions, even though it's online, awesome. I'd love to screen it at conventions. Um, we've been asked about coming to special events and comic book shops. There's a couple of comic book shops here in St. Louis that promoted it and helped us get the word out there. So I've offered to screen it at their comic book shops and come and do Q&A and show off some of the props and miniatures. But yeah, at this point, it's pretty much it's headed for YouTube. And um, yeah. But it's already committed to screaming and screening in Omnimax <laughs> Theater. There's a place here in town called the St. Louis Science Center, and they do something called First Friday. And every First Friday, they have a free event. And there's usually a theme. They've done Star Trek First Friday, Doctor Who First Friday, um, you know, they did a they did a, a a Christopher Nolan first Friday where they showed Christopher Nolan films and then tied it into science and magic and other things. <laughs> so next September they're having Marvel versus DC. Oh, they've asked me if I will screen Dark Knight Returns at Marvel versus DC, and I'm like, absolutely, I will screen it at Marvel versus DC. You bet That's I will. Cool. It'll be screened in the big dome, the Omnimax Theater, and now. Are you guys, because this is Bat Force Radio, do you guys have a preference or a lean towards DC? Or are you kind of open to talking about, you know, anything? We talk about whatever. Yeah, we, okay. talk, we, talk, we talk DC, Marvel, indie stuff as well. Okay. Because me personally, I just, you didn't ask, but we've been talking about films and you got onto Keaton and you got onto the Batman films. Me personally, my all-time favorite superhero film, number one superhero film for me, is Superman the movie. Christopher Reeve, 1978. Um, to me, that is the greatest superhero film ever made. Love it. You'll, yeah, you, you'll believe a man can fly. And, and I did. Yeah. <laughs> and then number two for me has got to be Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight. Um, that's probably number two. And then number three, I go sideways a little bit. My number three superhero film is actually Blade. I I love Blade. I think Blade is an amazing film. And yes, I love the Iron Man films. I love the Avengers movies. I love a lot of different stuff. But those three for me, um, Blade blew my doors off. I thought Blade was just an amazing comic book film. Um, it, it gets left out of a lot of comic yeah. movie conversations. Yeah, because it's not well, part of like the modern slate of Marvel films. It sort of gets forgotten about. But man, you revisit that film and it is talk. It, it does so many things. It's got such a comic book flair. It's the, the visuals are amazing, but the performances and the action are spectacular. And it wasn't like a two hundred fifty million dollar film. I get annoyed with two hundred fifty million dollar films that have to be a home run worldwide or they're a flop. Um, Blade was this like $45 million film that did well and knocked it out of the park and didn't break the bank. And, you know, I get frustrated with, you know, you have a film like Batman versus Superman for better or for worse. It's a $250 million film. It has to be one of the most successful films of all time. 
or it's a flop. And I just, I think the stakes are so high. I think if someone offered me $250 million to make a film, I'd almost rather want to back off and make 25, $10 million films. You know, I just, (laughs) and then you get so much money involved. It has to appeal to everyone. And then you start stripping out what makes it special. I mean, let's turn around and look at Deadpool. I mean, Deadpool hats off to those guys, a $50 million film with an R rating, and they said, screw all these other issues. Let's make the film we want to make. And a comic book character that the general public has never heard of. Not, not a lot of them have. And, and what I did it make? 700 and something yeah. million dollars worldwide? It was just yeah. this huge, huge to, to, be, to be fair, though, I think um, there was this slight little rom-com aspect of it, too, because I think a lot of women liked uh, Ryan Reynolds, I think it is. So, oh, yeah. That, 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 was a little bo- that was a little boost, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I was not a huge, I mean, I like about half of Man of Steel. I think half of Man of Steel is really great. Half of Man of Steel is questionable. But he's dreamy. But Dale here, (laughs) all about Henry Cavill. I got to ask you, Wyatt, uh, how many times have you seen Man of Steel? (laughs) You know, I I only saw it once in the theater, but I've seen it now on DVD. Here's, and I'll explain myself. Because I said the same thing when I first saw it, like half and half. And then... Because they played on TV a lot. The more I watched it, the more I kind of really liked it for some reason. I don't know. I think it's just one of those movies that resonates a little more when you you pick it and get it, dive into it a little more over time. Yeah, and it's it's really actually a, a really big departure in style for for Zack uh, Snyder because I'm a big snacks Zack Snyder fan other than Batman versus Superman. Um, I like Zack's stuff, but up to that point, his stuff had been really kind of solid and smooth and very cinematic and very carefully crafted. And then Batman or uh, Man of Steel has this sort of handheld sort of docudrama, you are there style to it. And I like that a whole lot more as time goes on. But no, I've watched the film probably another half a dozen, 10 times on DVD. But what's interesting is I've also watched, I bitch about Batman versus Superman, but I've seen Batman versus Superman, the director's cut, like five times now. But what it is, is there are moments that I love and I love watching and analyzing films like that because I learn. A film I have watched repeatedly is Peter Jackson's King Kong. And Peter Jackson's King Kong, it's like a guilty pleasure because it's a big, indulgent, over-the-top mess of a movie, but there's like an hour and a half of it that's brilliant. And I watch the film and think, oh, you could have cut here, you could have cut here. I would take out all of this, but then I'd do this. And so I, I watch the film repeatedly sort of as an exercise to kind of analyze it and and i learn a lot of things from it and 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 it's very different from guilty pleasures because trust me i have guilty pleasures i have guilty pleasures that i know are not great films but i love them anyway and they star ryan reynolds and i and i don't care (laughs) (laughs) like one of my one of my greatest guilty pleasures of all time is a 1985 film called life force I, th- I thought you were going to say Green Lantern. <laughs> <laughs> guys, guys, honestly, I have never seen the Green Lantern movie. Oh. Yeah, you're not missing much. <laughs> speaking of uh, speaking of Green Lantern, it took me a while to piece this together, and I didn't piece this together until I was writing the script. Did you guys realize that the woman that Bruce Wayne is talking to in the beginning of The Dark Knight Returns was Carol Ferris? In the... Uh... 
the race car tower? Well, I mean, in the comic book. Oh. Like the first, I don't know how many times I read it, I didn't connect the dots. I didn't realize Carol Ferris was who he was talking to. And it was later on reading about actually the casting for Green Lantern and reading about Blake Lively playing Carol Ferris. I went, Carol Ferris, wait a minute, Ferris 6000. And, and then I st- then that's when I realized that the Carol he's talking to in the tower, because in the comic book, we don't see Carol Ferris. He's only talking to her over the car radio. Right. I actually decided to show her. And I don't know if you guys notice on her lapel is a uh, star Sapphire pin because nice. she's one of the star Sapphires. So that's another little Easter egg for people to see is if they'll notice that star Sapphire pin. But she, yeah, she's I didn't all want... over the place now because uh, her character appears in both Man of Steel and uh, Dawn of Justice as well. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, she's played by uh, Christina Wren, who we had on the show a while back. Oh, yeah. Where was she in Man of Steel? Uh, she, you, you know, at the end when he destroys that drone and you know she's Superman like... flies away, and she's the girl that giggles and says, "I think he's kind of hot." I'll be damned! I don't think I realized that. Yeah. I don't think uh, she she she's what? back in uh, in Dawn of Justice as well. Ah, okay, all right, that's good to know. I'll to, now see now I'll have to watch it again for that yeah. part. I'll have to. Yeah, I'll there to... you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's getting a lot of little Easter egg parts that uh, that mm. people think she's going to be heavily involved in with uh, maybe in the Justice League or maybe another future film oh, in the oh, DCU. Um, Hopefully. We really like Christina, so yeah, you know, we hope that she was fun hope they... Yeah. Such a sweet girl. The lightning round. Okay. So, you know, you had to get ready for the Batman film and do a lot of exercise to get in shape, whatnot. You already were in shape, but, you know, to play Batman, you got to get in peak physical shape. So, um, how much do you deadlift? Um, when you're talking deadlift, you're like pick up off the ground or like bench press or yeah, pick up off the ground. You know what? I can't answer that question because I don't do that, but I, but I can do four sets of, I can do five sets of 25 pushups of my own body weight. How's that? And I weigh two, I weigh 230 pounds, so I can do five sets of 25 pushups. Nice. How's that? Uh, How tall are you? I'm about six one. Very dark night proportion. That's. I'm I'm kind of a dense guy. I'm kind of, like I said. I I would have liked to have gotten slimmed down a little bit more for the film. I would have liked to have been more like two fifteen or so. But I'm I'm six one and two thirty. Um, I started off probably two twenty five, close to two thirty, and I think I stripped off probably ten or fifteen pounds of fat and put on about ten or fifteen pounds of muscle. I didn't lose anything. I just rearranged it. I moved it all up a little. <laughs> Well, sorry, I sort of blew your first lightning round question there. So no, that's cool because uh, St. Louis is kind of close to Chicago. We have one of our Bat Force members from Chicago, and he he swears that deep dish pizza is the best. So uh, we want to know what kind of pizza do you like? Do you like the deep dish, thin crust, flatbread? It's I don't know what the standard crust is called. That's a little bit thick and a little bit doughy. Um, yeah, but that's you know. I, I, God forbid I'm going to say this out loud, but you know, like the Domino's style crust. I'm not saying Domino's pizza, but I, <laughs> I'm, I'm like the standard crust guy. I love the standard crust. I'm a I'm a Detroit gal and grew up on Little Caesars pizza, so yeah, I yeah. like that crust too. 
Yeah, so like the Little Caesars standard crust, too. I'm not saying Domino's and Little Caesars is all we eat. There's some brilliant pizza in the St. Louis area. But having said that... It's more the New York style. I will eat anything. Uh, when it comes to pizza, deep dish, thin crust, thick, you name it, I will eat it. It's, it's, it's sauce and cheese and dough. There's not a downside to it. This is a sin for me to say because I live in St. Louis, but St. Louis is famous for its thin crust pizza, which is cheese on a cracker, and it, it's, to me, a lame excuse for pizza. <laughs> so so when, when I come up there for the filming of the second part of Dark Knight Returns, where are we going to go eat pizza? Yeah, right. Tulane's. Tulane's is a good choice, and uh, there's a place we've been going to now called Pi, and it's spelled P-I, and it's... It's, it's the uh, symbol for 3.14. Yeah, it's the symbol for Pi. Um, and Pi runs the range. Pi, you can get thin, regular, thick. Pi's got all kinds of good stuff going for it. Um, we haven't actually gone in there yet, but Doocracy smells amazing. Yeah, there's a new place called Doocracy that we got to try. But yeah, Tulane's or Pi is where we would probably take you. Now, the typical St. Louisan is going to tell you Emo's. But that's cheese on a cracker. But that's cheese on a cracker. So, you know, oh. good no, people like it, but, you know, hey. It would be an experience of the St. Louis pizza. It's just not. Well, when I go to Chicago and I have the time, I hit Geno's. I hit Geno's in Chicago. <laughs> We'll have to ask Scott about that. So what's your now, favorite Gramps, kind? Gramps, back back to your role in the next movie. We oh, all yeah. know that you're we all know that you're playing Bruno. Oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's awesome. I love that. That is great. Absolutely yeah. I would do that. <laughs> what's your favorite type of cupcake? Ooh. Yeah, There's I mean, different types? I thought it was just like a genre, cupcakes. No. <laughs> I'm going to go with like a chocolate cupcake with chocolate icing with like a cream filling. Triple threat. Yeah. Like Hostess? <laughs> <Triple> Hostess <laughs> <laughs> would be okay, but I'm going to say chocolate chocolate with cream filling. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> if it and, and if you don't have one of those, a chocolate muffin with chocolate chips in it will will do just <laughs> as well. But yeah, give me chocolate chocolate and cream filling. That's that's my thing. Because it's yeah. chocolate cream, I'm kind of yeah. right there with him. Yeah. We had cupcakes at our wedding. Yes, we did. We had cupcakes at our wedding. And, oh, by the way, by the way, you got, I don't know if you guys figured this out yet, but Gail and I are married. I, I, I figured, figured it out. out when you said at our wedding. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was when my keen mind uh, grasped it. Yeah, back a while ago when we were talking about the wedding. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Robin <laughs> is also the world's greatest detective. <laughs> yes, I am. Since you two are married, what is your go-to '80s karaoke love duet? Don't go breaking my heart. It's not '80s, but <laughs> that would be more '70s. That'd be Elton John and Kiki D. But don't go breaking my heart. And we have yet to actually perform it together, but we threatened to. Yeah, we well, threatened to. It's a good time to start, so let's hear it. <laughs> oh, <dear God. laughs> oh dear. I think I'm gonna de- I'm gonna yeah, defer on yeah, that one. Pass. Yeah, I'm gonna defer on that one. Interview yeah. over. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, Wyatt has done a couple of really spectacular karaoke nights. What did well, you do? Neil Diamond one time? I did Neil Diamond, Cherry Cherry, and then at our wedding I oh. sang to her um Dean Martin's version of uh Ain't That a Kick in a Head. I had so. no idea he was going to do it. It was awesome. Yeah. So 
I'm a little more comfortable with Dino. I'm a little more comfortable with Dino. Do you guys have a favorite sport or sports team? <laughs> Marvel? Is that right? <laughs> Marvel. No, no, no. Um, you know, uh, like most people in the St. Louis area, I'm I'm a Cards fan, but I'm also like the f- like I'm the first one to start rooting for so- like as soon as the Cards were out of it, I was all about the Cubs. The uh, Rams can suck it. Uh, the Rams, <laughs> Rams can suck it. Where they're at, what city they're in. Um, but, you know, for me personally, like high school and then in my young adult years, I was never a big sports player, but I love to swim and I love to cycle. And I've fallen off the cycling a little bit, but Gail's kind of big into the cycling. Gail, Gail will occasionally go out and do the marathon cycling. I have a, but, I'm the team captain for a cycling team, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I like the Cardinals. And um, that being said, though, if somebody were to ask you to name any member of the Cardinals baseball team. Well, the first person I say is Pujols, and then he's gone. Right. Yeah, Pujols is gone. <laughs> we don't, we don't well, I, follow I, I, I would still say Ozzie Smith. But. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and you know, that's legit. Ozzie's still got the rep. Ozzie's cool. We go and eat at Ozzie's restaurant. It's cool. Nice. Cool. Okay, um, if you if you had um, if you could bring back any dead director filmmaker or any current filmmaker, who would you choose to have uh, a lunch with and just pick their brain? There are two that come to mind immediately, and I'm going to have a hard time picking between the two of them. One is Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Um, because the guy was brilliant in terms of pre-planning and figuring things out and storyboarding. And, and he came up with brilliant technical solutions for how to shoot things. And another one would be John Sturges. And John Sturges' name isn't immediately recognizable, but John Sturges did these sort of big adventure films that were really well-known Um had these huge ensemble casts and these huge technical productions, but it's like, it's not like he was a household name. John Sturges did the great escape. He Uh, did, he did marooned. He did ice station zebra. Um, John Sturges just did these big, broad adventure films that were just really, I mean, the great escape is one of my favorite films. Um, But yeah, either John Sturges or Alfred Hitchcock. Um, I like William Wyler a lot. William Wyler is the guy who directed Ben-Hur. And I'd love to sit down and spend a lunchtime asking him about working on Ben-Hur. That would be pretty spectacular. So For me, I think it would be John Hughes. Because mm, yeah. I'm such a child of the 80s. Well, I was that age in, in the 80s when all these movies came out. And <laughs> I, there's a, the, the way he incorporated music, and music is such a huge thing for me, that the way he incorporated music and pop music into his films and really made it meaningful. That's something that just really has stuck with me. Yeah. Good answer. Good answer. Thank you. (laughs) Favorite John Hughes movie then? Ooh, breakfast club. For me, it's 16 candles. Breakfast club is good, but I think 16 candles is a tighter movie, but that's me. What's your favorite type of Eminem? I'm a traditionalist. Yeah. Traditional. Traditional. I'm going to go with, uh, I don't care about I don't care about color. Like it can be the regular mix of the five colors, or it can be the Christmas mix, or you know, it can be the custom colors you get from one of those M M&M and M stores. But yeah, crunchy outside and chocolate inside, and although the yeah. ones with pretzels in them are pretty amazing. Oh, oh see now, yeah, no, right. no, traditional, traditional M and M's, traditional M and M's, traditional. 
So if you're gonna send us a bag, mini, you know, little mini bags of <laughs> Halloween. So where can we send our listeners to find out more about the movie? Do you have a Facebook or Twitter, social media? We do have a Facebook. Um, it's the Dark Knight Returns, an epic fan film, and we haven't really reached out beyond that as far as any other social media. We're just kind of trying to build that right now, but we would love to build the likes on that because we only just launched that page. And then there's always Wyatt's website to. See what he's got going on. Wyattweed.com is is me, and I and I've been talking about doing Wyattweed.com for many years, and I finally did it earlier in the summer because I knew The Dark Knight Returns was coming out, and I wanted to finally get my damn website up and running. But the Facebook uh, Dark Knight Returns an Epic Fan Film is probably the best way to go. And then of course Gail and I are both yeah you know uh, administrators on it, and you can reach us directly as well and. But the, the the premiere dates and the information and the behind the, the scenes stuff. And... Um, my intention over time is to. I mean, this could all go south. We could put <laughs> this on YouTube and it could get seven. It could get a million and a half views, or it could get you know, like she said, seven. Um, or it could be something in between. It could be a few tens of thousands. Um, if it does well and there's interest, I'd like to do a director's commentary version where I oh, put out yeah. a separate That's version that has a director's commentary where I'm just talking about how we made it. And based on this conversation tonight, you know it's going to be a much longer film than... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pause it. I'm going to pause it right here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I've talked about doing that. I've talked about just pausing it and continuing to chatter. Um, and then... Uh, the Joker, who is from Venezuela, Carlos, he suggested the other day that we subtitle it with Spanish subtitles. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. So um, so there's many other things. And we had a, a young behind-the-scenes guy, Gabe uh, Sheets, was on it most of our shooting days. And he shot a lot of great behind-the-scenes footage. So oh, cool. as time permits, I'm going to start assembling little behind-the-scenes vignettes that we will also put on the Facebook page so people can see bits and pieces of things. Also on the Facebook page, I'm going to start doing – we've talked so much about the comic book. I'm going to start doing uh, comics-to-screen posts where I'll show the comic book frame and then I'll show the shot from the film that is similar or that's adapted. Or I'll show the sequence from the comic and then show the screen caps from the movie and show the translation or how we got from A to B. Um, so we'll be doing that on a semi-regular basis. Well, Wyatt, Gail, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, thank you, guys. We had such a good time talking to you, and we really wish you the best uh, for the success for the film. We can't wait and wish nothing but the best for you, too, and hope to get to talk to you soon. Absolutely. Yeah, guys, anytime for, for anything you guys want to chat about, yeah, just let us know. We're, we're always willing to talk about movies. We, we love it. We love it. <laughs> We love what we do. Awesome. All right. Hey, Gotham Dwellers. Make sure to stop everything right now and subscribe to Bat Force Radio. We can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Don't miss out. Guaranteed to satisfy all of your Batman and DC needs.